It happened in 1969, and you know who did it? The NYPD's Public Morals Squad. That was a thing back then. They raided the bar, but gay bars were commonly raided during that time period. What happened that was different was as the patrons were kicked out onto the street, they started to fight back. They picked up everything they could on the street and just started throwing it at the bar. And that led to the movement, which spread nationally. We knew it was another raid, when all of a sudden we heard a crash and somebody threw a rock through the window. But this time, Stonewall patrons resisted arrest. The violence escalated, and eventually hundreds of people joined in. Mark Siegel was there too. Stonewall turned him into an activist. Most people think that Stonewall was one night. Some people say four nights, some people say six, some even seven. And you could see those numbers at various museums in the United States. But when people ask me how long Stonewall was, I say 365 days. And the reason I do so was the spirit of Stonewall was carried from the ashes of Stonewall to the creation of Gay Liberation Front. And practically everything that was Stonewall was Gay Liberation Front. The first night of Stonewall, Marty Robinson gave me a piece of chalk and told me to write on the walls in the street, tomorrow night Stonewall. That created the second night of Stonewall, where Marty Robinson and uh, Martha Shelley spoke from the very steps of a closed Stonewall and asked for organizing. That led to the third and fourth nights of Stonewall, where we were leafleting on the street demonstrating against the police, which was something that was incredible at the time, considering the fact that that was illegal. That led to the first march three weeks after Stonewall from Washington Square to Sheridan Park, uh, which was at Christner Street and 7th Avenue. Uh, that led to demonstrations against media for the first time, against Time Life Incorporated and the Village Voice. That led to demonstrations outside the police station. That led to legal alerts. That led to medical alerts. It led to the creation of gay youth. It led to the creation of street transvestite action revolutionary, STAR, the first trans organization. It led to the first LGBT community center. If all of that were not allowed, enough. It led to the first gay pride at the end of that first year. All of that was created by Gay Liberation Front. All of that from Stonewall to Gay Pride was Gay Liberation Front. How many people would you say are involved in this movement at this time? Because it sounds like there's a need of many people creating a lot of this stuff. That night outside Stonewall, um, I estimate was no more than 75 people. You have to realize that at that time in history, if you were gay, you were a criminal, basically. So anybody who had a decent job who was in that area, anybody who had family in that area, they ran away from the area. The only people that stayed around Stonewall at that point were street kids like me, and I, I describe myself as a street kid in those days, um, people of color, um, and drag queens. They basically were the, the three types of people that stayed around. And a, and a few young activists like um, Marty. And those people created the core of Gay Liberation Front in the following days. Uh, so a lot of people say, I was around, I was at Stonewall. My re response to them is, oh, and what did you do afterwards? Were you part of the creation of this community? Because anybody who's a member of Gay Liberation Front were the founders of the gay community we have today.
anything that happened before was basically segregating our community. And I believe that's why, like you were saying, the history is so important moving forward, knowing where it started, where, where it came from, and then how to build that moving forward. Well, I think many people want to whitewash our history, um, and the uh, they don't, and they do so by pointing to the marches in Philadelphia from '65 to '69 every July 4th, and I think that's a really bad place to start. And the reason they want to point to that is because it was all white men um, in uh, suits and ties and women in dresses. Nobody could dress any way but that. And in 1969. Gay people weren't dressing like that. That was something from 1950. Um, they also wouldn't let young people or trans people march with them. That is segregation. And why people want to point to that, I have no idea. When you could point to something that happened before that, which is the Compton riots in San Francisco, which included trans people. Or you could talk to about the um, sit-in at Dewey's lunch counter in Philadelphia, which basically was trans people again. So we sort of cherry pick the history that we wish to look at. And at the moment, we're looking at the one that's the most segregated. I realize that's something very controversial to say, but um, it's something we've begun to realize over Stonewall 50, and it's angered me. I'm really glad you're saying it because that's some of the, the um, um, questions that have been brought to me from the community when I've been asking, what would you like to raise? And it's exactly that, the whitewashing and uh, changing of the history. So I'm really glad you brought it up yourself. Well, it's something that I haven't done in the past because I know people who march in those marches. Um, and some of them are still around today. Um, but I realize that I'm doing a disservice to the entire community if I keep quiet about it. So I've decided no longer will I uh, be silent on the subject. My name is Innocent Mugenga, and you're listening to the Learnability Podcast. We all come from somewhere and aim to make a journey through life. Constant change. This is an open-ended exploration of our ability and desire to learn, grow, and adapt. In conversation with inspiring individuals and experts in the fields of sciences, technology, behavior, and performance, We seek to find answers to how to navigate and win in this information age. The future is happening now, and we aspire to evenly distribute the knowledge by empowering your learnability. Let's go. We just heard from Mark Siegel about uh, the history of Stonewall and the growth or the birth of the movement. And with us here, we have Juliet Atto. Welcome, Juliet. Thank you. Thank you. What's your relationship to the history of Stonewall and the history of the movement in large? Starting out with the going to Pride, you know, as a teenager, I, I didn't know much about, you know, the history or basically at all about the history. You know, my idea of Pride which had been presented to me by, you know, white cis gay men was that it was one big party, basically, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that we put on a show for uh, the straight gays, you know, for straight people. Um, so it took me quite some time to, to learn about the actual history of Pride and what it means and what it, where, it, where it comes from. Um, so it was when I was sort of 
started to get fed up with that whole, you know, just party atmosphere when I felt like, well, this is not, well, I couldn't relate to it anymore. Oh, yeah. You know, when you get older and you start thinking more about, you know, your life and your identity and what, what it all means. And, and I was kind of feeling left out, like I wasn't really uh, a part of, you know, the community. So, no, I just sort of took it upon myself to, to learn more about it. And it was all, you know, coincided very much with, um, with meeting other like black and brown LGBTQ people. And, uh, and you know, learning that, hey, we, we started this, you know, it came from us. And, you know, and Pride started as a riot. And, uh, and it's about, you know, human rights. So, so that's when I started sort of organizing um, with, that, with that agenda. And, you know, to, for us to know that we, all, all LGBTQ people don't have their rights. And we're not just one big, you know, happy family. So it's sort of uh, like you reached a period of growth and, and with that comes uh, depth and perspective. And it's really interesting. I want to get more into Black Queer Sweden, which you're a co-founder of. Is this the exact period it started or how did that come about? Well, it started four years ago, not the, that group. It was a, a different group um, uh, called Black Coffee, which, uh, you know, they used to organize uh, Black Swedish people. So, you know, they wanted to organize a Pride in, uh, in Stockholm or they wanted to uh, be a part of Pride in Stockholm. And I was very new in the group at the time and I'd never been to any, any events. You know, I was scared. I didn't know anyone. And it was like, you know. But then when I saw that they were doing, like they had this Pride committee, then it really clicked. I was like, oh my God, you know, they're like black, you know, queer people. And, and it just clicked. I'm like, this is what I've been missing without really fully knowing what it was that, I, that I've been missing for all these years. It just clicked with me and I'm like, I have to be a part of this. So then, you know, I just, you know, wrote to them and, and I was like, hey, I want to be a part of this committee. So, and I was, and, um, and we organized the first uh, sort of all black section in the Pride Parade that I think, I think any Pride in Sweden, not just Stockholm, ha- has ever seen. And we had a all black panel discussion and it was amazing. It was like one of the best days of my life. It was the first time Pride actually meant something to me on a deeper level. And of course we went out and party too, but like when you have both those sides, where you get the uh, sort of the protest side of it and the community side of it, but also the celebration part of it. You know, it was just all of it coming together and not just one side. And then, you know, we saw there, there were so many of us, you know, black queer people that had a need to, to meet and to be around each other. So, so that's when, you know, four of us, myself, Samuel Girima, Justin Balagade, and Grace Job um, decided to start Black Coffee uh, LGBTQ for Black Coffee's uh, queer members. So like a, a sub-community to the Black Coffee community. Is yeah, right? yeah, exactly. So, and uh, we, you know, we just arrange, um, you know, meetings and, uh, and then later on, like, panel, like, you know, panel discussions and, you know, lectures. But, you know, the main thing was for us to just sort of be uh, with each other to know that, you know, that we're not alone. So, yes, yeah, so that's when it started, 2015, pretty exactly four years ago, since it was, yeah, during Pride in Stockholm. And then, you know, that was on for about a year and a half, I think, maybe almost two years. And then we left the group 
all four of us that uh, created it, we left it. And then Samuel and I decided to start Black Queer Sweden. We have, you know, a separatist Facebook group only for Black uh, LGBTQ people yeah. in Sweden. And also an Instagram account uh, for, you know, open for everyone to follow. You know, just Black Queer magic, as we say. We're very appreciative from the team at Levels for you taking your time and the work you've done. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. You're the founder of the Philadelphia Gay News that you started in 1976. And you're currently still running that. That's a long time going. I believe that I'm the longest um, single publisher in LGBT publishing. I've been active continuously since we started the paper in 76 and have been its publisher since then and uh, helped create some of the LGBT publishing organizations we have today. And how would you describe your mission of the paper? Well, I think the mission of the paper follows the route I've taken in my life, which is since I was 18 years old, I've always believed that the LGBT community needed more visibility in order to um, gain equality. Uh, That's a two-way street. In order to do that, we need to work, of course, with mainstream media to reach society in general. And we also need a platform within our own community to, to discuss the issues and discuss how we should be fighting for equality, because many people in our community have different views. And LGBT publishing, at least locally, can help to be that platform which creates dialogue and communications within inside the community. Oh, yeah. So it's about uh, both uh, getting the message out, but also empowering within the community. And it's also about bringing uh, issues uh, before our community that we don't often think of. For instance, many people believe that our community is made up of nothing but wealthy, individual, male, um, with with huge incomes. We have a very large part of our community which is totally disenfranchised. We have people who um, have disabilities that we don't deal with very often. We have gay youth that are homeless, um, and we try to bring that plight to the view of our readers. Um, Trans issues have been something that we've been covering for 44 years now, which the community seems to have just woken up to in the last 10 years. And I think that part comes from my activism when I was 18. Um, I worked with trans people when I was 18. And so becoming a publisher, it was not an issue that uh, was strange to me. Um, And therefore, this publication um, basically was one of the first publications to deal with that issue on a regular basis. If I got my my math and my calculations right, you started the publishing when you were 23. Is that right? Correct. Wow, that's really young, heading into starting something as large as this. Well, by that point, I'd already been a gay activist for four or five years. And um, uh, at that point in my life, I was probably one of the best-known gay activists in the nation. And the way the paper came about was due to that. I was on a speaking tour uh, in uh, Ohio and western Pennsylvania when a man – 
the, uh, the man that I was with and speaking for and presenting the Ohio East Gay News uh, suggested that we create a Philadelphia Gay News. And at that point, I had no experience. And I, I told him such. And he made a very simple uh, piece of logic to me. He said, Mark, take a look at your shoe. And I did. And there was a hole in it. And he said, Mark, sometime in your life, you're going to have to do something for a living. Because in those days, gay actors didn't get a salary. His idea was that Philadelphia Gay News would be something that I could make a living out of, uh, at least be sustainable in some respect, and also at the same time uh, get my message out to the community and uh, continue my community activism through the work I would be doing. That's fantastic, and it's a great reference. Um, I've spoken a lot about impact entrepreneurship, where you do good in your business while making money, of course. Well, I never expected to make money out of it, quite honestly. Um, it's done way better than anything I could have expected. Uh, I now make make a living out of it. We have 10 employees who support their families out of it. Um, so, uh, and it you know, creates a dialogue for the community. So I think everybody benefits. So you started this when you were 23 years old. It's 1976 by then. And how has the transformation been? I'm talking about the digital transformation foremost and keeping up with that. I guess you've had to take new shapes all throughout this journey. Could you tell us a little bit about that and how how that journey has been for you? Well, it seems like uh, it's issue by issue by issue, and I usually don't look back. Therefore, this year, Stonewall 50 uh, has been a watershed year for me in trying to understand what I've done, where I've been. Um, and I'm still trying to um, grasp that to some extent because it's um, somewhat surprising to me. And Stonewall 50, uh, like this podcast, a lot of people came to me and said, I'd like to hear about this journey. And that sort of really overwhelmed me and surprised me. But as I look back on just the newspaper alone, creating it in 76, the first uh, example was to prove who we were. People thought, for whatever reason, that a newspaper for the LGBT community would be something about sex. And we wanted to prove that we were hard-hitting journalists from day one. And to do that, rather than have anyone sexy on the cover, our first issue had a 40-some-year-old man who uh, was coming out as the Secretary of Health of the state of Pennsylvania. Our second issue had the governor of the, of the state of Pennsylvania. First time any governor anywhere in the nation had ever offered an interview to an LGBT publication. So we started at a high mark from the beginning um, and wanted to show people what they should expect from us. Uh, and that was, a, that was a battle. That was the first battle, was making our own community realize what they should expect. Um, and what we wanted to be uh, and how they should look at us. Our second battle was with um, mainstream media who wouldn't allow us in their journalistic organizations because they didn't feel that we fit or very simply they, they wanted to discriminate against us. So we had to fight for many years to become members of most of those organizations, which include Pennsylvania News Media Association, the Society of Professional Journalists, National Newspaper Association, Suburban Newspaper Association, all of which we are now members of, and I might add, award-winning members of those associations. But it seems like you've really had to work a lot harder than 
many other in doing this. Have you ever been discouraged while trying to to build your business and your publication? I think discouragement is uh, the first level of success, actually. Um, you start discouraged, then you uh, get annoyed, then you get angry, then you fight back. Um, and we fought back against every piece of discrimination against us um, and just totally bombarded all of those organizations, demanded to know why, um, and enlisted other members of media in our own city and eventually uh, won membership in all of them. In fact, I've even served on the board of directors of the Pennsylvania News Media Association, which literally had barred us from membership for 15 years. I asked Mark a little bit about how, how the transformation has been. You actually yourself work within media. So I want to take the time to ask you, how has this age, this information age that we're living in, how do you think it has affected the, the movement, community forming and the traditional media? How does that look today? I have a background, well, I work as a journalist at a, uh, a feminist publication. So, so yeah, I've been working with media a lot, you know, I'm a trained journalist, so that's my, well, I have a degree in journalism and I'm, I've been working, you know, with communications and, uh, and writing and yeah, with journalism. It's been a lifesaver for a lot of people. Uh, definitely for me, you know, for people who, who aren't around a lot of gay people naturally, you know, it's, it's been, it's been crucial, you know, mm -hmm. to, to be able to, you know, on Twitter or on Instagram, follow and find other queer people. Um, like that's been, it's been crucial for me, like yeah. in, um, not just in terms of my sexuality, but in terms of like feminism and, and blackness, you know, finding, you know, these, these other voices, you know, from other countries. And you can see that discussion happening that you're not able to have with people in your life because they can't relate, you know, they, they, they don't understand. Um, so it's been very crucial for us to find each other and to, and to connect in that way. Beyond the uh, physical limits with yeah, your nearest yeah. surrounding. I mean, especially for people that don't live in, you know, urban cities, like in larger cities. That they're not able. They're definitely very sort of segregated from you know um, the rest of society. It's it's been essential for them to to have to, these uh, online platforms. Um, but of course, you know, I mean, the downside of that has also been uh, the lack of you know physical meetings and physical you know concrete sort of organizing oh yeah so it maybe stops at the digital at the likes or comments yeah exactly you know like you can sort of uh, it has you know created this sort of i don't want to say laziness is not the right word but but like people feel like that's enough yeah you know comfort? like that's, uh, is that a word yeah it's definitely uh sort of digital comfort in a sense you know that uh, that that is enough you know and that visibility is enough but you know visibility alone doesn't equate equality you know it doesn't you know equal actual rights because we are a lot more visible now than i think we've ever been and and that is a great thing and that is important for our lives and our stories to be seen and heard but that's not enough that's far from enough especially if you maybe want to change some policies i, I can imagine right you have a big following here and you have uh, maybe a, a post that got a lot of likes but to meet in the physical and let the world see that we're gathered here. I think that might have more effect. 
besides being the founder of uh, Philadelphia Gay News, besides being a gay activist, you're also an author. The review says, Siegel's book has been described as part autobiography, part history lesson. He grounds the history with a moving glimpse into the lives of his struggling but dignified and, in their own modest way, heroic parents. The historical section recounts Siegel's clever interventions to save America from its addiction to hate and empower straight and gay allies who were ready and eager to help but were waiting for an opening. Time and again, Siegel found a way to provide that opening in the vast wall of silence. So, I haven't had the opportunity to read the book yet, but that really gives me a good idea of how you managed to tell your story while telling the story of so many people going through the struggles during the 70s. Thank you for that incredible um, review or overview of the book. When I wrote it, I didn't expect it to be <laughs> as you described um, or as similarly been described. Um, I was writing something to put my life in perspective, and it was being written more for me to let people know what I thought of my background rather than allowing other people I didn't realize the many things that I was involved in because I get in my life, I go from one event uh, to another event to whatever I'm working on today and don't look back. Uh, writing, a, writing a memoir, one has to look back. And the strange thing about me was, and you mentioned the internet, what, what a great tool the internet is. I was able to research myself and I would find things that I had totally forgotten about. And once reminded, I was able to recall them and write about them and to actually do research on myself and what I had done. <laughs> um, and uh, um, it, it was a great, it's been a great experience, um, better than many experiences I've had in my life. And I went into the project thinking that I would have fights with my agent, fights with the publisher. Um, they were all incredible people to work with. I had one of the best editors in the business, uh, Michael, who had edited um, uh, time, Life and Times of Harvey Milk. Uh, he also edited my book. And uh, what I discovered, to my surprise, was that I'm one of the few people still standing that has documentation for so much of LGBT history, um, from Stonewall to Gay Liberation Front, founding of Gay Youth, Vert Nation's first uh, gay youth, the world's first gay youth organization, uh, my fight against invisibility, which meant fighting the various TV networks. Yeah, you had a very, um, I'm guessing at the time, a new approach in doing that. Oh, yeah. Well, every time one has a new approach, sometimes the people around them are part of their community, don't appreciate that approach. The biggest surprise to me and the most emotional part of the book for me, um, when I reread my own book, because you write, I wrote chapter by chapter by chapter, and you finish your first chapter and you're on to the second chapter. And by the time you finish, you then reread the whole book. Um, I guess the two biggest surprising parts was one line when, uh, I had to read that at times 99.9% .9 of my community was opposed to what I was doing. Um, and that was made me realize how much of the hate that I had suffered at the hands of our own community. 
And most of those people now um, who are still around come up to you and go, you know, I really supported you when you did blah, blah, blah. (laughs) (laughs) In hindsight. And I just just let it go at that point. But um, And so therefore, I think when people in our own community today want to do something a little different, we might want a little, you know, give them, if we disagree, give them a little opportunity to try. Um, For me, that's worked very well. Um, The examples I can give you best are when I fought TV networks, people hated the fact that I would disrupt uh, live TV shows. Um, And uh, at Stonewall 50 in New York this year, all the TV networks wanted to talk about that and how far TV networks had come. Um, And the way they did that was really kind of interesting and eye-opening and sort of gives me a chill when I speak about it now. So I would disrupt TV shows like the evening news or the big morning chat shows. And uh, these were live on TV, which meant that I was being seen by millions of people and therefore those millions of people had to talk about us. Now, even if they talked negatively about me, it still meant they had to talk about the subject, which was, was my purpose, um, which ends invisibility, discussion and d- invisibility, which is all I wished for. Um, so on the 50th anniversary and probably I think it's the 47th anniversary of some of those disruptions, the two major networks which I disrupted decided to interview me. And the way they interviewed me was quite interesting. Um, they had LGBT um, news people do the interview. Now imagine what that meant to me. I was fighting the fact that there was no LGBT representation on the networks, no characters, no news people, um, not even reports of gay demonstrations. And this year they had openly LGBT people interviewing me, talking about Stonewall and its impact on media over the last 50 years. So at each of these demonstrations, I demanded either that the network cover news events or have uh, LGBT people on the chat shows to talk about our issues. And both those things happened. I read another line in regards to your book. It's about how can the most effective activists succeed with a combination of direct action and a healthy dose of political pragmatism? Ah. Or one must say, cool sanity. <laughs> so would you say you use a combination of those? Uh, absolutely. Um, I've always said that if the um, oppressor is willing to sit down and chat, we might be able to find um, common ground. In the case of networks, they would not sit down and discuss issues. In 1973, Siegel stormed a live broadcast of the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. An incredible journalist, considered one of the best journalists that ever existed in the United States. He held a sign saying, Gays protest CBS prejudice. He was was the number one news uh, personality at that point. A message seen by millions of viewers. And there were only three networks. There were no cable news. So in those days, Walter got the lion's share of ratings, and his nightly newscast had 66 million viewers. So when I did that, uh, Walter became a friend and an ally to the gay community, and that changed the CBS Evening News. 
which later had an impact on the other network news. So that one zap changed network news and the way the gay community was viewed um, by TV networks. But Cronkite heard his message. The homosexual men and women have organized to fight for acceptance and respectability. Gay people have the same rights. Months later, CBS became one of the first networks to discuss gay rights. That led to shows uh, like Will and Grace, like Ellen, because once people got comfortable with hearing the issues, they were able to deal with it on a different platform, that platform being situation comedy or a drama show. Unfortunately, our um, major media organization here in the United States, GLAD, um, still doesn't recognize those events. They start out with Ellen DeGeneres being the timeline for television, unfortunately. That's still this little thing that gets me annoyed. So that's in one angle, which is the media. I've also worked in the political angle and used the same exact technique, which is uh, disrupting government until government responds to the needs of the LGBT community. And that's worked pretty well uh, in my viewpoint here in Philadelphia, to the point which I consider Philadelphia the uh, nation's most LGBT-friendly city. And that's been ranked number one by Human Rights Campaign, or HRC, which is the largest civil rights organization for the LGBT community here in the United States. Could you describe maybe some of your tactics in uh, doing this? Basically, it comes to just sitting down with the political leaders, letting them get to know you and hear what your ideas are, what your thoughts are, and explain to them that you don't want anything special. You just want equality and showing them how they can create equality. Of course, with elected officials, they're thinking of where they're going to get the votes. Um, so you have to create uh, a system whereby you're out, you know, Uh, getting people in your own community to register to vote. And so therefore, there's a voting block that they can look for. At the same time, explaining to them, it's not only good for you politically, it's also the morally correct thing to do. What you've told us here about your your technique of using zaps in television and media, getting some... Um, acknowledgement of the movements and combining that with like you're saying effective conversations it reminds me when i was reading through and doing some re research i came to think about a swedish example of this of greta thunberg uh, an environmental activist can you translate that i don't know if you've heard of her there's a young girl called greta thunberg she's received a lot of international coverage recently she started school striking for the environment. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, and she's got uh, she's spoken in front of um, the UN and got a lot of coverage in this. But in the same way, I I would consider myself an environmentalist, but when I heard of this, I was quite skeptic to her towards her tactics. It didn't feel that efficient, but she managed to combine that and get some coverage of her school striking in front of the government office here in in Stockholm. And then she started bringing in the messages and the actual impact. So it re really reminds me of that, and more than an example of of that tactic. Well, that's that's the point. 
Find a tactic that works for you that the media can no longer ignore. Once you highlight an issue, people will look at that issue and they'll talk about it. Um, she's doing the same exact thing that I did back um, in the 1970s, the 1980s. Um, when we had HIV AIDS uh, issue first cropped up, we had to make people aware of what the situation was. Um, the organization that did that did the same exact thing that I did. It was called that organization here in the United States was called Act Up. And what did they do? Civil disobedience. Civil disobedience is wonderful. It goes all the way back to uh, Martin Luther King uh, and the civil rights uh, demonstrations, the drug counter sit-ins, uh, the uh, picketing. All of that is something that any organization or person who wants to fight for any kind of human rights needs to do. That's that's really a, a great way of putting it, and it brings me to the next point of sort of this top-down versus bottom-up approach. And I would like to, because as you described, you got into the room with really powerful and famous politicians and, and famous people and was able to sort of affect the top-down approach while also empowering the people in the movement. What sort of balance do you see there? or Where would you like to put most of your focus moving forward? I always, I never know what my next project is going to be. It seems to magically appear, um, strangely enough. Um, I guess that's why I've been in so many pivotal points of the gay rights struggle. Um, my, the, the last large scale or uh, project I had, um, which I feel very deeply about right now, is LGBT senior affordable housing. Oh, yeah. Um, Please elaborate. Uh, since 1969 and Gay Liberation Front, we've been creating community. LGBT community is something that is brand new. Most people who are young today take it for granted. But before 1969, there really was not an LGBT community. There were only four ways that gay people met in this country. They were um, in cruising areas like parks and so forth, which was illegal, and they could get arrested for private house parties, illegal bars, um, and, and the few measly organizations there were around the country, maybe 10. That, were, that was it. There was no more gay community. Since Gay Liberation Front, Gay Liberation Front, uh, which was born from the ashes of Stonewall, wanted to create a community. And it, it did. It created the first gay, gay um, community center. It created the first medical organization, first legal organizations, and even the first gay pride. That all comes out of Gay Liberation Front. So in creating community, um, we, we have to look at all the needs of the members of our community. And sometimes um, that might be a disenfranchised group or people that, that you've never thought of before. Uh, you know, we, we've skipped over various parts of our community during our history. Trans community uh, is the people that most people would think of. Uh, we also, had a, for a while, um, weren't looking at the issues of gay youth and uh, the tortures that they go through. Um, now, another issue that we're just beginning to look at is our LGBT seniors. Today, our LGBT seniors literally are the first out generation. That first out generation, people in their late 60s, 70s, and 80s, came out of the time when their families probably uh, didn't support them. They came out of the time when they probably couldn't get it. If they were out, they couldn't get a decent job that gave them a good retirement. So therefore, 
affordable housing is extremely important to them. Um, so work for, for me, that's an issue that I care a great deal about. And I was very able, very lucky to be able to meet and work with Barack Obama to create a building like that here in Philadelphia, which has 57 units. Um, it was a $19.8 million project. Um, one of the largest projects I've ever worked on in my life. Um, it's up, it's running, and it's very successful. And when you say top leadership, I think I provided the leadership to get it built. But on the day we opened the building, I told the residents, it's your building now. It's time for you to decide what kind of community you want to make it. And I've kept that approach ever since. The building's now been open, I think, five years. And I go over there maybe every couple of months and just take a look. Um, and I got to tell you, every time I leave that building, I have a big smile on my face because I see LGBT seniors involved with their community um, uh, and having a very healthy, active life. That's a great example of the combination of the both approaches needed. And it's also, it makes you realize how many nuances or details of the movement that can go missing, like the seniors or the trans and how important it is that people like you bring this to light so we can start uh, taking action and, and uh, making progress for everyone. Yeah, and, and we all have to take on whatever our passion is at that moment. Um, due to Stonewall 50, my, my latest passion, I guess, is LGBT history. Um, discovered how distorted it was this year. And we had a reunion of Gay Liberation Front, which was the organization that carried the spirit of Stonewall through that whole first year from Stonewall to the first gay pride, which we created. Um, and I discovered uh, that uh, many people just didn't know that history. And so one of my passions, I don't know if it's going to be the passion I go forward with, is making sure that that history gets out there. And uh, that's our mission here. And I, I personally want to learn more about it. And I'm, I'm so thankful you could, uh, through learnability, help spread um, knowledge about the history. Well, I, I think, as I, as I just said, the most magical year in the entire gay rights struggle, in my belief, is from Stonewall to that first gay pride. I believe that that was the foundation of creating a gay community. And I think that's been overlooked um, for a long time. And the reason it's been overlooked is that the people with privilege didn't want to look um, at the people who that were leading that effort because we were working class people. We were trans people. We were young people. We were people of color. And up until that point, um, and this is where I think it's the most controversial thing I'll say, we had a, an LGBT leadership um, that was segregationist um, and wanted to be oppressive to our own trans uh, members of our community and even the youth. They would accept none of us as members in their organizations. And that's the same organization that should be empowering and bringing everyone right. on board. So, so from the ashes of Stonewall comes Gay Liberation Front. We accept people of color. We accept youth. I was a youth. I was 18 years old. Um, before Gay Liberation Front, Mattachine Association, Mattachine Society would not let me become a member. Uh so there were the youth, there were people of color, there were the trans people, and everybody knows 
two of the trans people that were part of Gay Liberation Front, Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson. They were our sisters as part of Gay Liberation Front. We considered ourselves a grassroots movement that wanted to work with other intersectional communities that were working for social justice. So we worked with organizations like the Young Lords who are fighting for Puerto Rican rights in New York City. We fought for black rights with groups like the Black Panthers. Uh, we marched to free Angela Davis out of the House of Detention. These are all things that activists today are looking to do is to work with all forms of social justice movements. We've uh, spoken uh, a lot about that cross-functional um, collaborations and it, collaborations in large is really empowering. Yes. I think, you know, all of us have our own resources and to connect to that, like, you know, for instance, this podcast or with me with writing and with journalism and, and to spread it in, in that way. Like in this uh, issue with the magazine that I work at, a uh, publication called Bang, which is about the LGBTQ movement. Yeah. And, we've, and, and we're showcasing movements around the world. And we have a uh, Zimbabwean uh, trans activist called Miles Rotendo Tanhida, who writes about um, sort of the, the, the queer community in Zimbabwe, for instance. So, you know, doing that, you know, lifting those voices. Definitely. And that, I think, perspective gives a lot. Like, I didn't know too much about the Pride history before going into this. And I'm so glad I had the opportunity to do that because knowing more, you can do more, you can... It just helps having a wider perspective of different movements, different situations. And having someone from Zimbabwe writing about that experience in his words is powerful. Well, it's essential. It is, it is extremely important because not just one of us or just one group can, you know, create real change. We need each other. And, uh, you know, a lot of activists, and I see that a lot in Sweden, essentially such a, you know, small country with few people, relative small country, and how activists, you know, just, you know, burn themselves out, myself included, I've been burnt out. Um, so I don't do things like I did before because that was just unsustainable. So for sustainable activism, for sustainable organizing, for sustainable community, and for actual change, we need to collaborate. We need to get together and do things together. Because that's, I mean, that's the whole foundation of a community is togetherness. So collaborations is, are essential. That's fantastic. Really well, well said. I was uh, preparing before this episode with the team at Levels. And we started talking about symbolism and design. Mm. Do you have any any thoughts or words on that when it comes to the the movement? You have the flag. Uh, I started doing research. There's many different versions of the flag and a lot of symbols. And right now you're talking about creativity, uh, arts. Yeah. Um, how how important is that? And in what way would you say? Well, it is important in the sense of uh, visibility. You know, of course, the pride flag, I think it came from, it was in the 70s. I don't remember the artist who, who designed it, but it was, yeah, it was in the 70s, yes. I remember. And it was, it was eight different colors then. And all of them, and now it's six, but, you know, all of them sort of represented uh, a different aspect, like, you know, like life and, and love and, and stuff like that. And, you know, and within the community, there are different flags, like yeah. the different flags for, like, bisexual people, for lesbians, for... Uh, pansexual people for 
Bears? Is that yeah, right? Bears. Yeah, yeah, yeah which, are, which, is a, well. which is a sub-community within the uh, male gay community. And yeah, and then now the lesbian flag has gotten an, an update, actually. But uh, but yeah, so there so there are different flags within the community as well. And it's about sort of visibility and, and, and finding each other. And I think the flag at first, you know, it was about where you saw the flag, you knew that, okay, this is a safe place for me to be. You know, where the flag hung because it was you know like straight people didn't know about it mm. then you know it was for the community to you know as i mentioned to 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 find you know the right places and where you feel like okay here i can be safe i can be myself and of course uh since the flag obviously super mainstream you know the rainbow flag is known worldwide you know it didn't take too long for you know capitalism to get its hold on <laughs> on that flag with all these corporations you know changing their logos, you know, with the rainbow, like all the corporations and stuff. And, and during Pride, Pride Month is usually June. All, o- all over the world is seen as, recognized as Pride Month. So when June 1st hits, then you see, you know, you have, you know, the Apple logo, McDonald's, I don't know what, you see that in, you know, rainbow colors. And, and, and it's ridiculous, you know, it's a huge slap in the face to what that actually meant, you know, because these corporations are usually not safe for gay people. You know, or like how many gay people do they even hire? You know, like what policies do they have concerning homophobia and transphobia within their corporations? You know, but they just want, uh, you know, that gay dollar. You know, it's called pinkwashing when uh, corporations sort of use, you know, the the pride logo and stuff to get, you know, that money. Support. uh, To get that support. Yeah, because they know that, that, you know, a huge part of, you know, gay people still want to be accepted by, 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 you know, the majority of the society pink washing yeah pink washing but yeah so now the logo today the meaning of it it has you know people are conflicted by it but i think it's still important you know it's still our flag i read that you're proud of still calling yourself a gay activist do you think there'll come a day when when that's not needed in the same way for the gay community and do you think it will happen locally or globally? I think there will always be a need for, um, I don't know if the word is gay access, but but people uh, being uh, in leadership in our community. And the reason for that is, if you look at the various uh, communities today around the world, at least in this country, uh, you will see leadership in the black community still in existence, even though uh, some laws have been passed because there's still discrimination. You would see the Italian-American community has leadership. The Irish community still has leadership. Um, So there will always be some form of community building. Um, We're a young community. We're only 50 years old. We just started forming community in 1969 on the Gay Liberation Front. That's a very short blip of time in history. So we still have a building to do. Um, And because we're still building that community, we still have time for mainstream America to learn who we are. Um, we are their cousins, their aunts, their uncles, their brothers, their sisters, their mothers and fathers. Um, until everybody realizes that, we still have to fight for equality. So the job's not over yet. We're only a little way through it. And we also have to fight through some of the backlashes. We in the United States right now are having a major backlash headed by Donald Trump and Mike Pence. Oh, yeah. Um, So we're still fighting. Take a look at what happened just recently in St. Petersburg in Russia. Um, Take a look at the beheadings of gay men in Saudi Arabia. There are issues that are not only local, 
but they're international. International. And we, uh, as a community, have to fight all of them. That's so true. And I want to let you know I have uh, roots both from Rwanda and Uganda. And I think in Uganda we have a huge way to go in, in our policy. Legislation. I remember it well. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's embarrassing, really. Uh, no, it's not. You have to start somewhere. Um, it might be it's embarrassing from your government and from the people who support it. But guess what? It's a time for education. Education will bring acceptance and equality. So uh, I know it's difficult for the people there to fight, but I do know that there are people there fighting and they will find a way to do it. Everybody in every system and every culture has to find a way that works for them. What we do here might not work for them. What works in one country doesn't necessarily work in a different country. What we have to do is support those efforts, whatever they may be, created by the people in that place. Um, I met quite a few activists from Uganda, where I'm from. Um, and it's a huge movement there, you know, and then they're kind of like in the forefront of, uh, of trying to, you know, change the laws. How does that work in, in doing that in Uganda? We had like, I'm just thinking of, we had the artist Bobby Wine arrested mm. for standing up for, for other uh, issues. So how, how is that when it's actually um, criminalized? Yeah, and, and they can be murdered for it. It's, oh my God. Well, it's, 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 I mean, it always disheartens me when I read about, you know, what's going on. I mean, these laws in, uh, in these former colonized countries are colonial laws. You know, um, they come from, if you look at East Africa, they come from the British colonial law. You know, it's not their own laws. And we have issues with uh, Western evangelicals mm -hmm. coming and spreading hate, mainly American and British, you know, white people spreading homophobia and transphobia and sort of, you know, recolonizing in a sense, you know. Um, so these laws are not even our own. It doesn't come from us, but we still have them. So, you know, the issue really is, you know, for them to organize, of course, they're, they're risking their lives, but they're still arranging pride. You know, there's been several plights in Kampala. Really? Wow. Yes. Wow. Yes. That gives me um, some chills. Yeah. That's yeah. And they have an, yes. And they have an LGBTQ magazine there called Bombastic. I don't know if they still have it, um, but they're still doing it, you know, um, while their lives are being threatened. And, um, and they still have, you know, like secret or underground clubs and spaces where they meet. Um, so, so they're extremely resilient and they inspire me always because they, they face a, a struggle that I, could, that I could not imagine. Brings us back really to the 70s and the 60s, 70s. Yes. And we're still, we still have that, you know, that's not over yet. And in larger parts uh, of the world, you know, that struggle for the basic human rights. Because we do, in Sweden, we do have basic human rights. Generally, we do. Um, but in most of the world, in most parts of the world, they don't. And we need to always remember that, that the fight is not over. And to not just think about the, you know, the Western, uh, usually American uh, perspective when it comes to LGBTQ people. And to know that, you know, the fight is going on very strongly. Thank you so much. That was a great way to end this episode. I really want to thank you for taking your time and joining us for this. Thank you. Send me the link when this is up. Where can people find you and your work and, and the Black Queer Sweden and everything? Give them everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I think mainly on, uh, on Instagram, I would say. We're on Instagram at Black Queer Sweden. 
Yeah, and if you are a black LGBTQ person based in Sweden, you can hit me up and I can put you in the uh, in the Facebook group. Great. Um, and that's uh, Jules Atto at Instagram? Yeah, on Instagram. Uh, yeah, I'm on Instagram as well, at Jules Atto. So yeah, so you can hit me up there uh, or on Facebook, uh, Juliet Atto. Uh, so then you can uh, add you into the group. Thank you very much, Juliet. Thank you. Great talking with you. You too. Take care. Learnability Podcast is produced by Levels, working in the fields of digital transformation, innovation, product development, and venture. If you want to know more about us, visit at wearelevels.com. And oh yeah, if you want to find additional material and contribute to the platform, you can do that at learnability.online. That's learnability.online. Looking forward to getting in touch with you. And oh yeah, stay curious. You know, in 2016, President Obama declared the Stonewall in a national monument. So the Gay Pride March here in New York City happens on Sunday, and it coincides with World Pride. More than two and a half million people are expected. Tony, I will leave you with this. Mark Siegel, who you saw in the story, who interrupted Walter Cronkite's newscast, said to me this week when I interviewed him, he said, David, if you remember nothing else, remember this. Pride means visibility.